Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. We're jumping into book the third, The Track of a Storm. And just by way of quick recap from our last episode, the main thing is just that Charles and Lucy get married. They have a child, two children, one passes away, and then years go by and we find out that things are really getting pretty awful in France. In the last couple of chapters, Charles gets a letter from the man who was sort of left in charge of the village where his uncle's chateau was that Charles had kind of just left behind because he was like, I don't want anything to do with that life. Not realizing that he couldn't just leave it behind. So he gets a letter from this man, Monsieur Gobel, who says, they're going to kill me. I'm in prison and they're going to kill me unless you intercede on my behalf. And so Charles leaves a note with his wife and his father-in-law. He says, I'm leaving. And he goes to France. That's where we begin. Here we are, chapter one of this new book. I feel like now that we're in book three, we're closing in. <laughs> yeah, well, we are. Like things get pretty heavy pretty quick, as we're going to find out. So chapter one is called In Secret. Again, this is chapter one in book three. It just talks about how Charles, it takes him a long time to get to Paris. A really long time. And just... For some reference, we are now in the autumn of the year 1792. And that's important. It says that even in regular times, it would probably take a while because there's just, it just takes a long time to travel at that point in time. There are no trains. I believe that now you can get in a train and ride from London to Paris in like three hours because they have the channel, right? So you can go under the English channel. So you can get from London to Paris in three hours. That's kind of amazing. At that point in time, it was really difficult, but that difficult just increased like a hundredfold because of the turmoil in France, because of the dawning of Republic One and Indivisible, of liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. He's on horseback, right? Yes, he is. So that's, you know, number one. And then number two, they've got all these checkpoints. I can't so even many imagine. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's like, show us your papers. Let's double check the papers. And Long lines. And so he's making his way along. And one night he gets to this inn, just so exhausted. He just collapses in the bed. He falls asleep. And then he's awakened just in the middle of the night by a local functionary. And remember that that's kind of what uh, Monsieur Gabel was, was a functionary. So sort of he's over a town, not really governor. It's just functionary. So the functionary of this town, he said he's, he's timid and he has three armed patriots wearing those rough red caps that we've referred to before. They don't call him by name, but they say emigrant because they know that he was French. He'd left France for England and now he'd come back. Okay. And they have a huge problem with that. We're going to find out why later. They said, we're going to send you on to Paris with an escort. And Charles was like, well, sweet. That's where I'm trying to go. And they said, no, no, like you have to have an escort because you're basically a prisoner at this point and you have to pay for the escort. It's an exorbitant amount of money too. 
Yes. It was very expensive. Yeah. He paid a heavy price for his escort. His escort. He has two, right? Mm -hmm. And one's drunk and one's sober. (laughs) Well, first it talks about their, their clothing. They're obviously peasants. They don't really know what they're doing. They've except that they're really very vicious and they would probably shoot at anything or, you know, that he tried to do, but they don't even know how to hold their guns correctly. Yeah. He was carrying his musket very recklessly. And like you say, he's chronically drunk. So then they get to the town of Bouvet, which is, if we remember where Dr. Manette was from. And he said the aspect of affairs was very alarming. And as soon as they ride in, there's people yelling down with the immigrant. That would be very disconcerting. You know, you see these people and they're like very bloodthirsty. I think they're ready to take him and beat him up, probably murder him right there. But the postmaster happens to intercede in his behalf. And he's like, he's going to be judged in Paris. So let him go. Um, I wanted to say one thing. Yeah, this is interesting. So first of all, as they're riding, they're like holding on to him. They have him tied. Mm -hmm. So like they have a, a rope around his wrist and then they're like holding the horse's bridle. Right. So he's coming into the town and everybody knows that he's this prisoner. Right. But I thought this was funny. The postmaster is kind of trying to protect him, but I was thinking about it. It says, let him be, let him be. He will be, ju-. I was thinking he will be judged at Paris. <laughs> <laughs> let, him of be, let him be. He will be judged at Paris. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that. I was thinking, oh. I can't remember if they say Paris that way in the, recording but that's just what when i read that that's what came to me i mean that would be kind of accurate though so i kind of love that's it funny. that's awesome anyway and the people are like yeah well he's going to be condemned as a traitor and darnay is like guys i'm not a traitor the smith i don't know if he's a blacksmith or what but he says he's a traitor since the decree his life is forefoot to the people his cursed life is not his own and at that moment darnay sees a rush in the eyes of the crowd it's like they're like get him get him you know and just oh that would just be so creepy and darnay's like so what is this decree that you're talking about and they said a decree for selling the property of emigrants when was it passed on the 14th and Darnay says that was the day I left England like oh crap you know like he hadn't (laughs) heard about this but this is the postmaster that is kind of filling him in because he's gotten him away from the crazy crowd and so he's telling him all this and he said everybody says it is but one of several and that there will be other decrees banishing all emigrants and condemning all to death who return and the people had even said, well, your life is forefoot. Like your, your life is not even your own anymore. Basically, they've been able to just sell off, destroy anything that used to be considered his and take it, whatever. He carries on to Paris and it's quite the trip. He sees lots of things as he goes along. And, and I think the thing that really stands out to him is that the land just looks sad. There's all these burned out houses. The fields have not been plowed. They've just been left in ruin. The people look awful. They do finally get to Paris and they get to the wall where, of course, it's very much guarded. And they say, where are the papers of the prisoner? And Darnay's like, I'm not a prisoner. 
you know, that probably is kind of panic inducing. And the guard totally ignores him and is like, where are the papers of the prisoner? The drunken guy gives him his papers and amongst the papers is Gabelle's letter. And then it just talks about how it's just not a good time at all. It's an awful time. And all the people in charge, all these guards, whatever, who are really just peasants posing as soldiers that have decided to be really passionate about something, they are kind of standing guard. Anybody who wants to get into Paris has to go through them first. They have to show their papers. The papers are often under very careful scrutiny. And so there's huge lines to where people who know what's going on, they will get in line and then just go to sleep for a while (laughs) because they know they're not moving for a long time. It reminded me of like um, American Idol lines when they're, when they're waiting Mm. to, you know, and people are just like camping out or sleeping, but yeah, they're just like, I'm just going to lay down here and go to sleep because this is taking forever. So after he gets through the gate, he's taken to the guardhouse. And from there, he's sort of handed over to this man. He's taken into guardhouse. There's lots of people in there. And then he goes over to this table where an officer is sitting and the officer addresses the man who had brought Charles in. And he says, citizen Dufarge, hmm? is this the emigrant Avramont? So we know there's Monsieur Dufarge right there with him. And he says, yes, this is him. They just ask some like basics about him. And then they say, okay, you're going to the prison of La Force. And Darnie's like, uh, why? Like, I didn't do anything wrong. And they just said, well, we have new laws since the last time you were here. So you think you didn't do anything wrong, but our laws say that you have, and basically you're not welcome back here and we're going to treat you like a criminal. I like that it said that he said it with a hard smile and went on writing. So it's like, Mm. Defarge is just like, yep, we have new laws. Sorry. Like there's no compassion or, you know what I mean? Yeah, none whatsoever. And we find that throughout Yes, this. They are very much very, very hard people. The officer tells him that immigrants have no rights. So then the officer tells Jafarge, okay, you take him to the prison in secret. Okay. And for a while, I was like, what the heck does that mean? Well, what we find out is that in secret just means solitary confinement, which is like kind of awful. They say it so many times and I was like, I kind of wonder if that's what it means. And then, yeah, yeah, that's what it means. Yeah. So Defarge takes him. And as they're walking along, Defarge is like, was it you who married Dr. Manette's daughter? And Charles is like, yes. You know, oh my gosh, like I know this guy. And Defarge says, my name is Defarge and I keep a wine shop in the quarter St. Antoine. Possibly you have heard of me. And Darnay's like, my wife came to your house to reclaim her father. Yes. And then Defarge says... In the name of that sharp female newly born and called La Guillotine, why did you come to France? Charles is like, you heard me tell you why. Because he had told him about Gabelle, who was shut in prison, how he'd come to help him. He's like, you heard me tell you. Don't you think that's the truth? And Defarge is like, well, it's bad truth for you. We find out that Dufarge, honestly, when this started, I was like, oh, this is so lucky. Dufarge probably has enough humanity left that he's going to help him somehow, but no. Yeah. There's nothing. (laughs) No, there's nothing. He's like, I'm not going to do anything for you. Like I'm not even going to get a note to your wife and father-in-law. I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. He's like, my loyalty is to the country. Nobody else. But a little bit back, Charles is saying this. I have one question. Then he asked several, but he's like, 
in this prison that I'm going to so unjustly, shall I have some free communication with the world? And, you know, he basically says, I'm not going to be able to present my case. And he says, you'll see. But what then? Other people have been similarly buried in worse prisons before now. And then Charles says, but never by me. Yeah. So Dufarge is basically, look, your people have done worse than this. And Charles is like, I didn't. It's one of those, you're guilty by association, which is completely unjust and so wrong. Can you at least give a message to Mr. Laurie? Mr. Laurie, like, because Mr. Yeah. Laurie's right there in France. Yeah. And he's like, no, I will do nothing for you. They get to the prison and the, okay. So there's a man with a bloated face who is the jailer. And he's like, how many more are you going to bring me? And Defarge is like, mm, who knows? Let's. See. Oh, no, no. He doesn't even answer him. He just left. Okay. So the jailer takes Charles into the main body of the prison. And he's not very happy about this. He's like, we are so full to bursting. And they tell me that he has to even be put into solitary confinement. And I don't have even have space for that. So, but he gets him into the large area with, with all the prisoners. And what stands out to Charles is, as he goes in is this is not your common room full of criminals. They're all gentlemen and ladies and there's children and just a lot of young people and they all greet him as gentlemen it says the crowning unreality of this long unreal ride was they're all at once rising to receive him with every refinement of manner known to the time and with all the engaging graces and courtesies of life so there's these people in prison and they're still acting the part of gentlemen and ladies and they're greeting him. They're standing up to shake his hand or, or whatever courtesies were practiced at the time. But what he says is that he seemed to stand in a company of the dead. It probably just seems so surreal. Like what are these people doing here? It says they were all ghosts, all the ghost of beauty, the ghost of stateliness, the ghost of elegance, the ghost of pride, the ghost of frivolity, the ghost of wit, the ghost of youth, the ghost of age, all waiting their dismissal from the desolate shore. Because that's really the truth. They were all there just waiting and they may not have known what they were waiting for, but unfortunately we do. One gentleman says, I have the honor of giving you welcome to La Force and of condoling with you on the calamity that has brought you among us. May it soon terminate happily. And then they take him off to where his solitary confinement is. And everybody, like, as he's leaving, they're kind of give, all giving their good wishes and encouragement. And Charles realizes that he's put in solitary confinement. And he's like, why? Jailer's like, I don't know. And he says, can I buy pen, ink, and paper? And the jailer says, well, you'll be visited and can ask them. And in that moment, I think that he has suddenly a much deeper appreciation for his father-in-law and all that he went through in being in solitary confinement for 18 years. And then he just like, he paces back and forth and you realize how very, very small this little room is. And he can hear things outside and let's see, with such scraps tossing and rolling upward from the depths of his mind, all these thoughts going through, racing through his mind, the prisoner walked faster and faster, obstinately counting and counting. And the roar of the city changed to this extent that it still rolled in like muffled drums, but with the wail of voices that he knew in the swell that rose above them. So it's like he's hearing the voice of his wife and his child and all these people that he knows. And it just 
would be torture. It's very similar to what his father-in-law is doing, him pacing back and forth. It's very mm. similar to him, to his father-in-law making shoes. Yeah, good point. Like he needed some sort of a um, distraction, recreation, Can something. You imagine? No. In like in no. Climate. <laughs> in, no. In basically like a stone room, you'd go crazy. Oh, yeah. At least the doctor could make shoes. <laughs> I know. I know. Chapter two, the title is The Grindstone. So Telson's bank is next to an old house. And if you remember a few chapters back, the monsieur that was the hot cocoa drinker, it's his house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's left because they've all scattered. Yeah. And they've turned, later in the chapter, it tells us that they've turned his house into armory. He disappeared, right? The house belonged to a great nobleman, who's the hot cocoa drinker, who had lived in it until he'd made a flight from the troubles in his own cook's dress and got across the borders. It kind of reminded me of Toad. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. He, like, dresses in his cook's clothes and escapes. Yeah. (laughs) Luckily for him, he wasn't a Toad, so... Mr. Laurie is now at the bank in France. I liked this part in the second paragraph where it says, for all things moved so fast and decree followed decree with that fierce precipitation that now upon the third night of the autumn month of September, Patriot emissaries of the law were in possession of Monseigneur's house and had marked it with the tricolor and were drinking brandy in its state apartment. So it kind of, in the last chapter, Things are just happening so fast that they can't keep up with what's going on. Right. Yeah. And I read somewhere too, that they had laws like that law was enforced about immigrants that they could make a law and then make it retroactive. Yeah. So, you know, he didn't know about the law or he could have done something a few days ago before the law was made and then he would get in trouble anyways, but just things are happening so fast that they just can't keep up. Well, and there's such chaos that like, Laws don't really even matter. They are so, you know, I mean, the fact that they can make a law retroactive. So it is just bedlam. It's a Lord of the Flies situation. I mean, it's- Who's enforcing the laws? It's the people. And they can just decide what they want to do. I think in the last chapter, they say, well, what about this? And, you know, I didn't know this was a law. And the guy says, I don't care if it's a law or what happened, or I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. (laughs) So it doesn't even matter. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and this is a funny little tidbit, I guess, is the bank is in, uh, what is it in? I don't know, but there's a Cupid that is painted on the ceiling that they tried mm-hmm. to paint over. Yeah. <laughs> and it still shows through. Yeah, and it yeah. says the Cupid was still to be seen on the ceiling in the coolest linen, like what, a diaper, aiming yeah. as he very often does at money from morning to night. <laughs> okay, I wrote this. And I don't know where it came from, but I wrote the situation would not fly in London. Like, I think that's what they're kind of saying is that it wasn't happening there. Yeah, I I know what you're talking about. I don't remember exactly where it was, but I remember getting that same impression. Like right here, a place of business in London, like Telson's place of business in Paris, would soon have driven the house out of its mind and into the Gazette. So, yeah, they wouldn't have tolerated this there. Everybody would have gone out of their minds. Mr. Laurie looks outside and he sees that there is a large grindstone in the courtyard. And I think at this point it's just sitting there. And it said it had a roughly mounted thing, which appeared to have hurriedly been brought there from some neighboring smithy or other workshop. So yeah, things are just happening so fast and it's chaotic and 
somebody quickly brought it in. <laughs> and then he says, thank God that no one near and dear to me is in this dreadful town tonight. May he have mercy on all who are in danger. And then surprise, just a few minutes later, Dr. Manette and Lucy. And then we find out later her daughter and Miss mm-hmm. Cross. Yeah. But what's interesting before that, it says that the bell at the gate sounds and he's like, oh no, they've come back. And at the time, we don't know who he's talking about, but we're going to find out later. He's certainly not talking about Lucy and Dr. Manette because he doesn't even know they're coming. He's talking about this horrid mob. And we'll get into that later. But I I wondered who that was when I read it. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to skip over that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know who he was expecting. So that's a good point. They tell him that they're there because Charles had written them letters and said he had followed Gabelle. And so they came after him and they know that Charles is in prison. Now, Mr. Laurie does not know. And Mm -hmm. he actually says, I haven't heard that. Well, she says an errand of generosity brought him here unknown to us. He was stopped at the barrier and sent to prison. The bell rings again and they hear a bunch of noise. Feet voices are coming into the courtyard. And the doctor says, what is that noise? And Mr. Lori's like, don't look, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't look out for your life. Don't touch the blind. Okay. So now I understand what you're saying. He had seen the mob before when they talk about the grindstone, nothing is happening, but he knew that they were there previously. So then Dr. Manette tries to explain why he has this privilege or why he's safe. Right? So first, why he knows that Charles is in prison is because he was a prisoner in Bastille. Everybody there is kind of on his side and will do what he wants them to do. He says, my old pain has given me a power that has brought us through the barrier and gained us news of Charles there and brought us here. So that's how he knows that Charles is in prison. So, and Dr. Manette thinks he's safe. And then Lori tells Lucy not to look out the window. Says, don't look. No, Lucy, my dear, nor you. And then he says, don't be so terrified, my love. I solemnly swear to you that I know of no harm having happened to Charles, and that I have no suspicion even in his being in this fatal place. What prison is he in? So yeah, there's the part where it talks about how he he has no idea. And then they tell him he's in La Force. Then he tells Lucy, I need you to listen to me. This is a matter of life and death. I need you to give me a couple of minutes alone with your father. And so she goes into another room. He comes back out to talk to the doctor and they kind of open the window a little bit and he kind of puts his arm on Dr. Manette to like, I don't know, comfort him, steady him. And how would he sort of stand back a little bit so that they can see, but are not seen is is what I would think. So out the window, well, there's two men sharpening swords on this grindstone that they're turning. And then there's 40 or 50 half-naked men covered in blood. This is a sight. Taking the swords that are being sharpened and then running. And, and everything is covered in blood. The swords are covered in blood. The grindstone's covered in blood. And they're in disguises <laughs> like this. They were savages in their most barbarous disguise. False eyebrows and false mustaches were stuck upon them. And their hideous countenances were all bloody and sweaty and all awry with howling and all staring and glaring with beastly excitement and want of sleep. I mean, they're just like, you know, we talked about earlier about several episodes back, like zombies that slept. They're just in this, I don't know. They're not, they're not acting human. No. And in fact, I thought 
something I, I kind of outlined the entire paragraph and I just wrote reminiscent of the spilled wine because here is that exact scene over again. Yeah. The women are pouring the wine into their mouths as they're working. Yeah. <laughs> and all their wicked atmosphere seemed gore and fire. I mean, it's just like carnage, right? The end of that paragraph, it says, and as the frantic wielders of these weapons snatched them from the stream of sparks and tore away into the streets, the same red hue was red in their frenzied eyes, eyes which any unbrutalized beholder would have given 20 years of life to petrify with a well-directed gun. So Mr. Laurie says, they are murdering prisoners. Like That's what's going on here. And he's like, if you are what you say, if this is actually the situation, and if you really have the power you think you have, as I believe you have, make yourself known to these devils and get taken to La Force. It may be too late. I don't know, but let it not be a minute later. That's kind of interesting because I wouldn't have thought of Lori as sending him off. He must have some sort of understanding of the attitude of these people because like you say, like he was right and he knew that Dr. Manette would be somebody that was actually revered. Yeah. Uh, and and I think it probably is just in the solid knowledge that he had been kept in the Bastille for 18 years. So he would have a huge amount of credibility with these people. That's all I can think. And then also maybe it's like, look, this is like our only shot to save Charles. So we have to try. So Dr. Manette runs out into the crowd and uh, Lori's watching him. And then a couple minutes later, the crowd starts shouting, save Evermond, which is shocking. I don't know how he obviously had some pull. <laughs> like, yeah, it's amazing. So this is the part, I think, where they're talking. Now we find out that the the child Lucy and Miss Pross are there. It doesn't register how they're suddenly there in the locked room. Like It's like maybe he didn't notice them before or something, but he's like, wait, how'd they get here? I don't know how that happened. That was weird. So the bell rings again. Yeah. So two more times, all the people come back to sharpen their weapons again. And it's just, it's all kinds of weapons, just anything they could have brought. So twice more that happens. He just tells Lucy that, because he doesn't want her to look, he doesn't want her to really know what's going on. So he just says, it's kind of like an armory. Yeah. That's all you need to know. A man so besmeared that he might have been a sorely wounded soldier creeping back to consciousness on a field of slain was rising from the pavement by the side of the grindstone and looking about him with a vacant air. I mean, that's just like this. I imagine this like man, like crawl, like army crawling, covered in blood, wounded, you know. Shortly, this worn out murderer descried in the imperfect light one of the carriages of Monseigneur and stagging to that gorgeous vehicle, climbed in at the door and shut himself up to take rest on the dainty cushions. It's just carnage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we haven't actually seen the carnage yet. We've just seen the perpetrators of it. And yeah, sure. Covered in blood. Animalistic <laughs> at this point. Yes. Okay. So chapter three, I'm going to move through this kind of just quickly tell it in my own words. I think basically Mr. Laurie, <laughs> it's very much a Mr. Laurie characteristic. He's like, I would do anything for Miss Manette. I would sacrifice anything for her. But I can't in good conscience have her stay at the bank because it's the bank's property and I don't want them to get in trouble for her staying here. So he goes out into the city to find lodging for Lucy, her daughter, and Miss Pross because 
the doctor left and he's not back yet. And so he's like, we got to find some better lodging for these guys. And it's kind of funny because he finds a little place and it's like really high up. It's, it's kind of out of the way, out of notice. And all the little apartments around it, their, their curtains are drawn or whatever, indicating that the people are gone. So nobody lives around them. So it's probably just about as safe as you can get. I had kind of even forgotten about this, but he has Jerry Cruncher with them. So he actually leaves Jerry with Lucy to kind of be their bodyguard in a way. But then he's back at the bank. This guy just shows up and it turns out that it's Monsieur Defarge. And Monsieur Defarge says, I have a message for Lucy from her father, but I need to give it to her directly. So you need to take me to her. And Mr. Laurie's like, okay. And, but he, he does have a letter from the doctor for Mr. Laurie to read. And he says, Charles is safe, but I cannot safely leave this place yet. I have obtained the favor that the bearer has a short note from Charles to his wife. Let the bearer see his wife. Okay. So the doctor does say, okay, take Monsieur Defarge to see Lucy, which maybe they felt like that's all they could do, but holy crap, that was not a good idea. Mr. Laurie starts heading out and when they leave the bank, they see two women. One of them's knitting. So one of them is Madame Defarge and the other is the vengeance. Both like some of the worst of the worst and they go with them. And so they get to the little apartment where Lucy and her daughter and Miss Pross are, they give her the note and Lucy is just like overcome. And she says she clasped the hand that delivered his note, little thinking of what had been doing near her husband in the night and might, but for a chance have done to him. She doesn't, it doesn't even cross her mind that like, maybe this guy has something to do with her husband's imprisonment. And maybe he has something to do with the possibility of her husband dying later on. So the note from her husband says, dearest, Take courage. I am well, and your father has influence around me. You cannot answer this. Kiss our child for me. So she reads it. She's just overcome with emotion. She starts sort of like kissing everybody around her. She even kisses the hands of Madame Dufarge, who does not respond at all. It's like super creepy, super evil. It says the hand that she kissed made no response, dropped cold and heavy, and took to its knitting again. It's like she just you know, stares at her and just carries on. Lucy doesn't miss that. She's like, all right, there's something wrong with this lady. Uh, and Mr. Laurie, it's like, it's almost like he's trying to smooth things over. He's like, Madame Dufarge wishes to see those whom she has the power to protect at such times to the end that she may know them. And he's like, isn't that so? And Dufarge just looks gloomily at his wife, gives no other answer than a gruff sound of acquiescence. It's almost like Mr. Laurie is saying, I think this is what's going on. He's like, am I reading this right? The response from Monsieur Defarge is, yeah. you're not reading this. We're not he's, here to help Well, you. I mean, like he says, he says yes, but he, he means no. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, and then super creepy, Madame Defarge is like, is that his child? You know, so she sees sweet little Lucy and points at her with her knitting needle and is like, is that Charles's child? This little exchange right here, first she says, is that his child? Not is she his child? Like, okay, she's a, she's yeah. a possession and she's pointing her knitting needle at her as if it were the finger of fate. Yeah. Basically, this child is going on her list. 
Yes, true. Which is very typical when people have plans to do horrible things to other people. Their first step is to dehumanize them. Yeah. And so in calling the child that. Her mother is standing right there. Yeah. And he's, so she's connecting the child to Charles. To Charles, not to Lucy. Yep. Yeah. So then Madame Dufarge is like, okay, I've seen what I need to see. Let's go. And Lucy's like, okay, please just be, be good to my husband, you know? And, and Madame Dufarge says, your husband is not my business here. It is the daughter of your father who is my business here. (laughs) Lucy says to her, she's like, we are more afraid of you than of these others. And Madame Defarge receives that as a compliment, as she would. (laughs) Oh, you think I'm intimidating and terrifying. Good. And this is sort of like Lucy's last attempt. She's like, please, oh, sister woman, think of me as a wife and mother. You know, have some heart, have some humanity. Whatever you have against my husband, just let it be squelched for my sake. And this is what Madame Dufarge says. The wives and mothers we have been used to see since we were as little as this child, and much less, have not been greatly considered. We have known their husbands and fathers laid in prison and kept from them often enough. All our lives we have seen our sister women suffer in themselves and in their children. Poverty, nakedness, hunger, thirst, sickness, misery, oppression, and neglect of all kinds. And the vengeance says we have seen nothing else. And this is so just cold. She says, is it likely that the trouble of one wife and mother would be much to us now? We've seen so much suffering. Why would you matter to us at all? You know, and basically she's saying all this suffering was people like your husband or who was responsible for all this suffering. So why would we care if you suffer while we punish your husband? And I think... That Mr. Laurie finally is like, okay, because he's trying to put on a brave face. He's like, courage, my dear Lucy. What is this despondency in the brave little breast? A shadow indeed, no substance in it, Lucy. He's like, come on, it's going to be okay. But it says in his mind, he was very troubled. Yep. He's like, okay, this is not good. I mean, do you think they go into this expecting or kind of expecting their help? I think so. I think that's really what they thought, you know? And what's interesting to me, I didn't realize it had been this long, but Mr. Laura did not recognize Mr. Defarge, probably for several reasons, but it had been 17 years since they'd gone to retrieve Dr. Manette, which is interesting because that means Dr. Manette really was not old at all because he, it says he's 62 now. So 17 years earlier, he would have only been 45. But he looked old. But he did. He looked old. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I would not even picture him that young. We, David just told me we went on a date tonight and on the way home, he was telling me about when he first started working after college, he was like 28 or 29. Mm-hmm. They had a 50th birthday party for his boss. And he's mm-hmm. like, I brought him a walker and I like bought all this stuff. And he's like, I'm getting really close to 50. <laughs> it's like, it goes so fast. Seriously, I know. Well, Ken and I were just talking yesterday about Ken's grandpa died when he was 52. And it was just like this very random, like he was this really healthy, very active. He was like a construction guy. And it was something he just like dropped dead. They opened him up and he was like full of gangrene. It was so weird. 52. So young. 
And then his other grandpa died when he was like 60 of heart disease. It was one of those things. Ken was like, you know, when I was little, I would hear about it and felt like, okay, like that's old. That's old. And now he's like, that's so young. That's awful. He's like, that's like 10 years away. (laughs) No, my parents had this um, guy in there at their church that he's 70. My parents are turning 70 this year. So in June and December, they'll turn 70. And he's this guy that they sat like in front of or behind like forever. He just didn't wake up this week. Like he died in his sleep and just didn't wake up and they started talking about it. And I said, okay, we're not going to talk about this. No, we're done. Seriously. (laughs) (gasps) Yeah. That's wild. The older we get, the younger those ages sound. Yeah, it's true. And it's wild. And it's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) passes so fast. Yeah. We always thought like, you know, people that we go to church with that when we were little kids, cause I've lived here my whole life. Right. So when we were little kids, they were old, but they weren't old. They weren't, but no. they seem old. And now you're like, wait, they're still kicking. They must've, yeah. they've just been old forever. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. And I'm, I'm like, and they seem the same as they did when I, I was know. Like four and five years old. I'm like, yeah. you haven't aged. And then I'm like, oh no, they have. You have to see pictures and then you realize that they have, but yeah, it's like when you see them all the time, you don't really notice the difference. And it's just like old is old, you know, they're just old. Like how yeah. old your grandparents were when you were little kids. They weren't I know. that old. <laughs> they sure seemed old. I don't know. Yeah, Anyways. So but yeah, 45. He was young. Mm. So chapter four, calm in the storm. So Dr. Manette returns after four days. On the fourth morning, he comes back in. Now, he doesn't mention to Lucy what he's seen because it's pretty bad. But he does tell Mr. Lori in secret that he had watched 1,100 people be, what is the word, executed. I don't know how they were. They just murdered. These were known as the September massacres. This is something that was a part of the history of the French Revolution Mm. and and it took place just over a period of four days that they just massacred people. They just brought them out and murdered them. Do you see what classic literature teaches us? I know. <laughs> I was thinking that today as I was reading and I was like, well, if you don't know anything about history, you should read these books and then you'll learn. Yeah. Because so, yeah. I really, I mean, I hate to admit this, but I knew nothing about the French Revolution, nothing. So anyways, it's been very, it's been good. It's been a good um education. Yeah. Yeah. And then you helped me too. So this is good. Okay. So basically in the prison, they have a tribunal, a self-appointed tribunal, like a group of people that are like, we're in charge and they bring the prisoners in. And those, those people decide, kill them, let them go or send them back into like solitary confinement or send them back into the prison. And so, uh, so what happened is Charles came out, I believe, and they wanted to kill him. Dr. Manette spoke up for him and then they decided to send him back in. But we find out that Defarge was one of the uh, people sitting on this on the tribunal. And I want to just do a little injection here because I think it's sort of a little pop culture reference that references the French Revolution and this exact scenario. So in The Dark Knight Rises, I don't know if you watched any of the Christian Bale Batman movies, but Ken Batman is like his favorite superhero, whatever. So the Christian Bale 
movies. There was three of them. So there's just, I don't remember what the first one was called, but the second one was The Dark Knight. That's like the worst movie ever made. I hate it. But this, the third one is The Dark Knight Rises. And what happens is basically this. It's like the, the people rise up against the wealthy of Gotham and they have this tribunal and they bring all these wealthy people out and one by one, they basically sentence them say okay well you can go or you're going to be executed but they have to walk across this ice knowing full well the ice is going to give way under their weight and they all die but it's like no matter what they say they pronounce them guilty they're all guilty no matter what and so i'm pretty sure it was purposeful it was this sort of replay of this tribunal during the french revolution yeah i don't think they cared whether the people were, they, they just decided you're either dying yeah, yeah. or you're living or, you, I mean, you're getting released, you're going back. So yeah. there was no like, did you do something? No, they're just deciding. So Dr. Manette was allowed to stay and to kind of watch over Charles and protect him. He was allowed to do that. Okay. You're going to have to help me with this part because I'm a little bit confused. So okay. this is what I got. Dr. Manette is dressing a wound on a prisoner. That had been released. And a savage person comes in and stabs Dr. Manette, right? No, they had stabbed the prisoner who was supposed to be released, thrust a pike through him because while they didn't know he that he should be. Him, while he was dressing his wound? No. Okay. So the prisoner was supposed to be able to go free. Okay. Right. He... It says, at whom a mistaken savage had thrust a pike as he passed out. Okay, so he's trying to leave, and somebody thought that he was supposed to be murdered, and so he, like... What happened is I watched a a YouTube video that was, like, a a description of this, and it was confusing. And and Mm -hmm. so that's why I was confused, because, like, when I read it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure Dr. Manette didn't get stabbed. But they showed him getting stabbed. So uh, I was really no. anyways. No, because what instead it was and that's why it says it's very inconsistent and so strange because the people are like, oh, he wasn't supposed to get stabbed. And so Dr. Manette goes over to help this guy, and all these other people who are formerly butchering people come they over come to help out. him. Yeah. Until the man is all bandaged up and then they go back to their butchery. Yeah. Okay. That makes way more sense. So I don't know. I'll share that video with you because we'll hmm. be like what? I don't understand. Okay. So then, I mean, he's disturbed because they just go back to killing people <laughs> with an inconsistency as monstrous as anything in this awful nightmare. They had helped the healer intended the wounded man with the gentlest solicitude had made a litter for him and escorted him carefully from the spot had then caught up their weapons and plunged anew into a butchery so dreadful that the doctor had covered his eyes with his hands and swooned away in the midst of it. He's just like, (laughs) what is this? Yeah. Yeah. And so basically Dr. Manette is feeling strength and power from his suffering that he has Mm -hmm. been exposed to. Right. And so he's feeling like he can save Charles. So then he becomes, he's appointed as the um, inspecting physician at three prisons. And one of them is La Force. Dr. Manette is able to get Charles out of solitary confinement. He's able to see him once a week and he's able to bring messages back and forth, verbal messages, Mm -hmm. because they can't write. If they do send a letter, they send it through somebody else because I think it's Charles that can't get 
Is it Charles or Dr. Manette? One of them cannot be caught having like helpers on the outside. It must be Charles. I'm trying. Yeah, to because it says among the many wild suspicions of plots in the prisons, the wildest of all pointed at immigrants who were known to have made friends or permanent connections yeah. abroad. So they're it's keeping very close eye on Charles because they're like, well, he might have connections someplace else that would come and help him. And so, yeah, there's no way they were going to let him write letters. And so then it talks about how basically Lucy and Dr. Manette have switched places. Lucy had brought, you know, really helped him when he first came out of prison. And now he's really helping her husband yeah. and her. So I think it's a year later. And at the end of the chapter, it talks about how he had been in prison for a year and three months. Mm -hmm. In all this time, things are just changing so quickly. The king was tried, doomed, and beheaded. The courts are prosecuting people constantly whether they're guilty or not they're just deciding that everybody's guilty I guess. yeah they delivered over any good and innocent person to any bad and guilty one prisoners gorged with people prisons gorged with people who had committed no offense and could obtain no hearing these things became the established order and nature of appointed things so this is just the norm right this has just become how things are okay and then they bring up the guillotine and the guillotine has basically replaced the cross. It's like they're wearing clothing with it on. And which is interesting. I, I saw that you could compare the cross and the guillotine and how like they both take life. And there's all these different comparisons you can do, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah. Um, and it's also like, it's something that is well-documented that just the French revolutionaries as they would, they wanted to bring down all religion. I don't know how you could in good conscious conscience do what they were doing and have religion, but like they were very anti-religion and felt like that was part of the oppression. And so that was part of their mission was bringing down any churches. And so they would replace the cross completely and replace it with this tool of just death. And while yes, the cross itself crucifixion was a horrific way to die of course that symbol is 180 from the symbol that the guillotine was the opposite so yeah. yes what it says about the the guillotine is just it sheared off head so many that it and the ground it most polluted were a rotten red it was yeah. taken to pieces like a toy puzzle for a young devil and was put together again when the occasion wanted it it hushed the eloquent, struck down the powerful, abolished the beautiful and good. It just, ugh. Yeah. So I think that just in that last paragraph, you know, it does talk a little bit more about some of the other ways that they murdered people, both through drowning, putting people in, in lines and just shooting them. But it zeroes in on Dr. Manette. He's silent, humane, indispensable in hospital and prison, using his art equally among assassins and victims. He was a man apart. In the exercise of his skill, the appearance and the story of the Bastille captive removed him from all other men. He was not suspected or brought in question. And that was something that was so rare. Anybody could be subjected to questioning, to being a suspect, but he was not. So he was not suspected or brought in question any more than if he had indeed been recalled to life some 18 years before, or were a spirit moved among mortals. So there's that recalled to life thing again. Here he is. 
And something that really struck me as I was reading this chapter is how it digs into this idea that that horrible time in the prison, all the trauma that it caused, it is something that now many years later, he looks back on and is actually grateful for. Probably something he never thought he would he would be grateful for because he spent such a long time trying to heal from it. But through it, he has strength. He has this power that he didn't even realize he had. And he has immunity, you know, and that's power in itself in this situation. So I love that lesson that we get from it, that even our worst moments, sometime down the road, more than likely, we're going to look back and be grateful for those worst moments because they've they've put us in a place that we would not be otherwise. And usually it's in being able to help other people, being able to help ourselves, our families get to a better situation. It's incredible. That's how it works. I like the idea that everything is eventually going to work out for my good. Yes. It might be hard, but we're going to learn something or grow or get something out of it. Yeah. And we will, even if it's a a ways down the road. But I think if we're, if we have that in mind that whatever we're going through, we are going to be better for it. We may be able to reap that faster than otherwise. Yeah. It's hard to see it in the moment, but absolutely when you're past it, then you're like, Oh, now I see what, why that happened or what I got out of it. Okay. On to chapter five. So this chapter is called The Wood Sawyer, which is funny because I'd never heard that word used. Have you? No, other than just as a last name. So I guess. But he saws wood? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) That was my thought. I don't know. Um, Okay, so we talked at the end of the last chapter how it had been one year and three months since Charles had been in prison. I like the very first, well, the second sentence. During all that time, Lucy was never sure from hour to hour, but that the guillotine would strike off her husband's head next day. Like, can you imagine? I guess I think of it as like sending your, like sending your husband to war and like thinking, are they going to call me? Like, you know what I mean? Same kind of thing. Yeah. It's like pretty, I, I feel like it would be pretty crippling anxiety. Like, yeah, very, very, because it is an extremely real threat. There's nothing imagined about it. Like it's very well happen. It kind of reminded me of one of my favorite books. We've talked about it before. It's called The Light in Hidden Places about Stefania Podgorska. And she was hiding 13 Jews in her attic. And she would go out every day to work and to try to get food. And she knew that like any day she could come home and there would be Nazis waiting to kill her and her sister and everybody. And so she lived in this extreme anxiety every single day of her life. And that's what this kind of reminded me of this very real threat. Just you're just on the edge of it every day. And that would just be so exhausting and so awful. Yeah. So on one hand, she's worried that his head's going to get chopped off any day. But then on the other hand, it talks about how she sets up her house and Mm -hmm. lives as if he's going to come home that day any day or tomorrow or whatever. Right. So she just keeps everything going just as if things were normal. She, you know, works on her lessons with little Lucy and they have a routine and maybe that's her way of coping, right? Everything's fine. Even though in the back of her mind, she's worried about him. Dr. Manette, remember he he gets to see Charles and he goes into the prison because he has this new job as the 
he inspects the wounds or something like that of the prisoners. He tells Lucy that there's a spot on the street that if she stands at 3 p.m., that her husband might be able to see her from this window. And it, it sounds like it's Charles's idea. He's the one that says, mm-hmm. tell her she can come to the street and she can stand here and I might be able to see her. She does this every day, rain or shine. Uh, and she goes for two hours. So she goes and stands there from two to four o'clock. And sometimes she brings Lucy with her if the weather's good. I mean, that's dedication. <laughs> it is. And the thing to remember, too, is like her father told her she would never be able to see Charles. And she really couldn't make any indication. She couldn't wave. She couldn't do make any indication that she knew there was somebody up there. And the chances of him actually seeing her were pretty slim and rare. Yes. But she went every day just in the off chance that he might be able to get to the window and see her. So that's. Yeah. At some point in here, it talks about how he might see her three times in a week, or he might not see her for a fortnight or. Right. I think Dr. Manette kind of knows when he gets to see her, but, but she has no inclination, but Mm -hmm. she goes every day. Now, next to where she's standing on the street, there is a wood sawyer. He used to be a mender of roads. So he is the mender of roads. Mm -hmm. So the first time she goes by or she comes in there, she sees him. His house is like right next to where she's standing. And so she can't help but be seen by him every day. (laughs) The first time that she sees him, I love this. I mean, he's like joking with her. Well, they address each other and it's the law that they have to address each other as citizen and citizeness. Mm -hmm. So she says, he says, walking here again, citizeness, you see me, citizen. And then he makes a little joke. I'm guessing it's a joke, right? I think he knows why she's doing this, that there's somebody in the prison. And so he makes a hand gesture with his hands like it's a prison. What is the Yeah, word? like the like, bars of a prison. Yes, yeah. in front of his face. Mm-hmm. And he peeks through them. And then he says, but it's not my business. But he knows that there's something going on there. So one day she comes down with Lucy. He says something to Lucy and she's like, what do I say back? Like they're kind of leery of him. He makes another little joke about how his saw, he calls it my little guillotine. And then he sings a little song. I'm guessing la 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 la. And off his head comes. And so he goes through this as he says that then he chops a piece of wood off and some of it falls into the basket. And then he does it again. And he talks about a woman off her head comes. Mm-hmm. And he sings this Lulu, Lulu, right? And then now a child, tickle, tickle, pickle, pickle, and off its head comes all the family. And so he's using them. Those are the characters in his little joke. But yeah, he's mother. reenacting what is happening at the guillotine every day. And it's pretty disturbing. Yeah. Uh, especially because earlier in the chapter, it does talk about how like daily these tumbrils, these wagons are going through the streets full of people. And it describes how there's no line that they won't cross. They take children, teenagers, women, men, grandparents, everybody to the guillotine. And so his reenacting a child is not inaccurate, you know? And so it's pretty awful. Yeah. It reminds me of, I don't remember if I read it in my child development class or not, but children's A lot of children's play songs like Ring Around the Rosie have these roots in this. Very dark connotations. Yes. That we have, we don't think about while we're (laughs) singing them. 
she's creeped out by this basically and she kind of looks at him funny when he she kind of gives him this quizzical look yes that's that's what the yes she shuddered and as he's putting more of these wood pieces that he's sawing off into the basket but it also says there's no way she can go here without being seen. And so she every day tries to talk to him first. She gives him money for drinks. She's like, mm-hmm. I got to stay on his good side. Yeah. But he was always watching her. Yeah. And I think she knew that. As every day that she comes down, you know, people are displaying pikes at their houses with red hats on them. I mean, I just, ugh, all of this is just so creepy. Yeah, she says she had seen the houses as she came along. This is one day she comes down to the um, spot mm-hmm. where she stands every day. She had seen the houses as she came along decorated with little pikes with little red caps stuck upon them. Also with tricolored ribbons. Also with the standard inscription, tricolored letters were the favorite. Republic one and indivisible. Liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. So she comes down this one day and the wood sawyer isn't in his shop. But in his shop, his saw isn't running and it says... Little Saint Guillotine. And this is one of the examples of how the guillotine has replaced religion here. Yeah. So basically, a mob then comes around the corner. She sees the wood sire coming in this mob of like, what, no fewer than 500 people. And he's holding hands with the vengeance. Mm-hmm. And they're doing this extremely creepy dance. Yeah. They were dancing like 5,000 demons. There was no music other than their own singing. And then ferocious time that was like a gnashing of teeth in unison. So anyways, they come through dancing this creepy dance. And I love this line in the middle of that really long paragraph. Next, The next paragraph, it says, no fight could have been half so terrible as this dance. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a crazedness about it. But she's scared. So it says, as it passed, having Lucy frightened and bewildered in the doorway of the wood sawyer's house. And then the feathery snow fell as quietly and lay as white and soft as it had never been. I thought that was a really like interesting contrast, like this mob of people come through dancing this creepy dance and then they leave and everything's silent and it's snowing, kind of this eerie, creepy, I don't know, silence. Another thing we're going to talk about, I think, throughout these next few chapters is how her father is like, oh, don't worry. I'm here. I've got this. I'm saving him. Don't worry. And she's like, I'm not scared for myself, but I'm worried about my husband and these people and what they could do. And then he just says, I just came from up in the prison and he's up there and you can go ahead and wave because nobody's going to see you right now. And he asks her, can you see him? And she's like, no, I can't see him. But she goes ahead and and waves. And then... Somebody walks by. Yep. Of course, Madame, she's knitting away. Yes, knitting away. I was like, as I was reading this and everything, I was like, she's knitting away. I'm thinking, she's got to have like piles and piles and piles of blankets or scarves or shrouds or whatever it is she's knitting. But yeah, Madame Defarge walks by. The doctor and her kind of say, hello, I salute you, citizen. And that's it. And then she's gone like a shadow over the white road. Oh, is it after that that Dr. Manette tells her that tomorrow he thinks that Charles is going to get released, he's going to be summoned, and that, you know, he's positive that he's going to come home tomorrow. And then Dr. Manette decides he needs to go to the bank to tell Lori about this. At the bank, he tells Lori, Mr. Lori, and then Mr. Lori goes and tells a mystery guest the same news. 
but we don't know who he's talking to. Yeah. So that's the end of chapter five. Okay. So that leads us right into chapter six, obviously called Triumph. So what happens in La Force is pretty much each day they go in and they announce everybody who's going to be coming on trial, coming before this conciergerie. They'll read a whole list and everybody has just gotten used to it. And they pretty much plan on those people being gone forever, right? It even talks about how when Darnay had first gotten there a year and three months earlier, everybody that had greeted him at the prison, remember we talked about, you know, everybody greeted him as gentlemen and as ladies, even though they weren't in these ideal circumstances, they they kept their courtesies about them and they were very polite. All of those people had been butchered in that massacre, in the September massacres. Everybody that he had met since then in the over a year had been sent to the scaffold. They'd all been guillotined. And so quite a horrific life to dwell on. But, you know, everybody sort of has their way of coping. And one way that they have of coping is that they crowded to the grates and shed tears when people were called out. Uh, but 20 places in the projected entertainments had to be refilled. So because they would put on like concerts and games and stuff in the evening as a way of entertaining themselves. So when there were like 22 or 23 people called with Charles Darnay. And so it was like, okay, well, we're really sad and goodbye. Now we have 20 spots to fill in our, for our concert and game. And it says they were far from insensible or unfeeling. Their ways arose out of the condition of the time. This whole part is really interesting and it's very profound. Similarly, though with a subtle difference, a species of fervor or intoxication known without doubt to have led some persons to brave the guillotine unnecessarily and to die by it was not mere boastfulness, but a wild infection of the wildly shaken public mind. In seasons of pestilence, some of us will have a secret attraction to the disease, a terrible passing inclination to die of it. And all of us have like wonders hidden in our breasts, only needing circumstances to evoke them. So it's almost like there's this draw to this morbidity that we almost can't avoid. I, I don't think it necessarily affects everybody, but it's almost like you feel like you have to be a part of it in some ways, which is awful and interesting. It's like a very extreme form of FOMO. Everybody else is dying by the guillotine. I probably should too. And so that's why it talks about there's people who totally didn't need to and they, well, none of them needed to, but you know, they were probably completely, in everybody was innocent. They didn't need to die <laughs> on the guillotine. But you know what I'm saying? They may have even purposely put them in circum themselves in circumstances where they ended up being sent to the guillotine because they almost felt like they had to. Or the thing, it was the popular way to go. I, I guess, you know, and it's something that we can't judge because it could happen to anybody depending on the circumstances, I think is what he's saying. So on this day that Charles is called out, there's, like I say, over 20, there's 15 that go before him. It takes just an hour and a half to condemn them all. They're all condemned to die. And I think it says they have basically like 24 hours until they're going to be sent to the guillotine. And then they called call Charles in. This is really interesting. He walks in there and he looks at the jury, the audience, the quote unquote judges. He says he might have thought that the usual order of things was reversed and that the felons were trying the honest men. That's because it's exactly what was happening. 
So, and it kind of describes like the men and the women there, they're very rough. A lot of the women are knitting. They also have daggers attached to their aprons. Sitting right there, right near him, but they won't look at him are Madame and Monsieur Defarge. That's kind of creepy. So his accusation, the thing that they say he's guilty of is that he is an emigrant. And he's like, well, basically, yes, because I did go to France. He said, look, I did not like the way that the common people of France were being treated. I could not live this way, being supported by their labor, but I couldn't support myself in France. That's why I left and went to England. And I just did things that I could there to support myself in England. But that's the entire reason that I left was because I didn't agree with this way of life. He's like, well, didn't you marry somebody in England? He's like, yes, she's actually French born. And then they ask if he has any witnesses saying that he was supporting himself in England, you know, not living off the backs of the people in France. And he said, I do. I have two witnesses, Monsieur Gabel and Alexandre Manette. It comes out that Lucy Manette, his wife, who he married, who was French born, but they did get married in England. She is the daughter of Dr. Manette. And this is very pleasing to the crowd because Dr. Manette was a victim of wrongdoing by the aristocracy in France. He'd spent 18 years in prison because of them. And so he's sort of like this champion of their cause. He does not see himself that way, obviously, but he's taking advantage of their bizarre notions. So they love him and he's, you know, a doctor and going amongst them and helping people and whatever. So I just, I just wrote down these people are like, just very naive children. Because as soon as he says that Lucy, his wife, the only daughter of Dr. Manette, says this answer had a happy effect upon the audience. Cries in exaltation of the well-known good physician rent the hall. So capriciously were the people moved that tears immediately rolled down several ferocious countenances, which had been glaring at the prisoner a moment before, as if with impatience to pluck him out of the streets and kill him. And that is true. These are the same people who are butchering people on the streets, sending anybody that they can to the guillotine. And then all of a sudden they're overcome with emotion to where they're crying. They're so very disordered very it's kind of similar to like when dr manette is helping that wounded Absolutely. prisoner and then the people just like they help him and then they just jump back into what they were doing it's like it's messed up yeah oh it totally is so from that point on i think he kind of sees the light at the end of the tunnel they ask like well why didn't you come back to france sooner he's like you know i came back to help a friend and he reemphasizes, he's like, well, I didn't come back because I didn't have a way of supporting myself. That's what I was doing in England is I was working to support myself, not having somebody else support me. I have a question. Yeah. So, and I couldn't find it anywhere, but Gabelle. So he was in prison and then that's why Charles came there. I thought I read somewhere that he had been kind of forgotten in prison. They'd yes. forgotten about him. And then, so he had just, he'd been in prison this whole time, right? Yeah. And then he just got out like a couple of days before this or something. Is yeah. that right? Yes. Because what it talks about is that because they call him as the first witness to like confirm everything that Charles has, says, has said. And that's when it talks about how, yes, he's okay. been in the prison and they'd like completely forgotten him until three days ago when okay. he had been summoned before the tribunal and set at liberty because 
the accusation against him was answered by the surrender of Darnay. So because they had Darnay, even though it had been a long time, they were like, oh yeah, we have Darnay. So you're good. You're, you're good to go. Okay. It makes no sense, but there's there, that's where it is. He confirms everything that Charles says. And then Dr. Manette is questioned. And of course, everybody loves him. But a big thing that he talks about is he's like, look, Charles was actually put on trial in England by the English aristocracy because they said that he was against England. He was a foe of England and a friend of the United States. Now, France, in a lot of ways, they were trying to copy the United States at the time. You know, they were like... Oh, they did it. We can do it. Of course, the Marquis de Lafayette was a huge hero of France, and he had come over and helped the United States. He ended up being put in prison in France, like during the revolution. But anyways, but he was still a big hero. So they were like, oh, he's a friend of the United States and a foe of the English aristocracy. He was even put on trial for that. So that is a good thing for him. So all the people are all for Charles Darnay being released. Since most of the things that happen are just by, you know, literally the voice of the people, just their their mob mentality. It is not democracy. It is mob mentality. They do decide to set Charles free. Everybody is so happy. They just act like they're so happy. They just receive him with open arms and they like put him up on this chair and they want to take him to his house and they do. They they carry him all the way to his house, and Lucy and her little daughter have are, have already returned to the house. They get him there, and they jump down, and they start dancing their horrific dance again. They put <laughs> a girl up on the chair that they brought Darnay in, and they haul her off as the, what do they call it, the goddess of liberty, and they finally leave. And so he's able to be reunited with his his sweet wife, who's just so happy. His little daughter, Miss Pross, is there. And Lucy's like, oh, dear Charles, let me thank God for this on my knees as I have prayed to him. Like I've been praying and praying. Now let me thank him. And so they all reverently bow their heads and hearts. At the very end of this chapter, her father does say, it's okay. Don't worry. I've saved him. Everything is fine. You know? And in this moment, that is true. He did. It was all because of his reputation that uh, yeah. Charles was saved. Yeah. I think he thinks we're safe. Everything's good, but yeah, all good. Not forever. So chapter seven, a knock at the door. I liked the last chapter because it was called triumph. And so when I started reading it, I was like, "Uh oh, and then I went, oh, triumph. Okay. This one's going to turn out good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A knock at the door. I don't think this one's going to turn out as good. Dr. Manette says, I've saved him. It was not another of the dreams in which he had often come back. He was really here. And yet his wife trembled with a vague but heavy fear was upon her. Dr. Manette is like, everything's great. I saved him. He's here. And Lucy's like in the back of her mind, like this, they could come in any minute and just yeah. decide they want to take him back. Yeah. And Dr. Manette thinks that everybody can just rely on him, you know, to be the the savior here. So basically they have to kind of live quietly so they don't have any servants other than Mr. Laurie had kind of given them Mr. Cruncher and then they have Miss Pross and those are the only two servants that they have with them. And then they also have to go buy their food in small quantities yeah, and like, like different market, well, different shops. Yeah. Yes. They have to be really careful. And so they all send um, Miss Pross and Cruncher out to run errands every afternoon because basically they don't want people to know that they have money for food. And so 
um, which they don't have a ton of money because it had cost a lot of money to feed Charles in prison Mm -hmm. for the bad food. Yeah. (laughs) He's paying for this awful food, but yeah. So they had, and then he had also, I believe, helped other people in prison. Yeah. And so a lot of their money had gone that direction too. Yeah. And it talks about how as they're shopping, Miss Pross, she is kind of hilarious. She did not want anything to really do with the French and she kind of refused to learn the language. And so she sort of found her own way of communicating and bargaining with them. And it was kind of her own little defiance. Yeah, I, I caught that a little bit, but it was kind of hard to follow. He wrote in a little explanation of what she would do. The shop owner or whatever would hold up so many fingers for how much something cost and then she would hold up one less yeah <laughs> it's like, this is as high as i'm going they're about ready to leave and miss pross decides that she's gonna ask dr minette like when can we go back to england and he says uh i fear not yet it would be dangerous for charles so they go they leave to go run these errands that they do every afternoon and i thought it was kind of funny these little partners like mr cruncher and miss pross they always go out together yes that was kind of funny but this paragraph it's like he'll stick in these paragraphs and like things are all great and then boom not anymore but not great anymore so yeah they they left leaving lucy and her husband her father and the child by a bright fire isn't that cozy and wonderful mr laurie was expected back presently so they're expecting mr laurie from the bank miss pross had lighted the lamp but had put it aside in a corner that they might enjoy the firelight undisturbed. Little Lucy sat by her grandfather with her hands clasped through his arm, and he, in a tone not rising much above a whisper, began to tell her a story of a great and powerful fairy who had opened a prison wall and let out a captive who had once done the fairy a service. All was subdued and quiet. Now here's what it is. And Lucy was more at ease than she had Mm -hmm. been. (laughs) She's feeling great. (laughs) Things look good. And then she hears footsteps. She says something to her father that she's worried. Again, her father's like, don't worry. I already saved him. He says, my child, I have saved him. What weakness is this, my dear? Let me go to the door. So he goes to the door and he opens it. And there's four soldiers there wearing red caps. And they come into the house and they demand the citizen Evermond called Darnay. And so they basically have this little conversation where he's like, well, what have I done? Why? Who's coming to get me? Why are you here? And they just say he is a prisoner again. We're taking him. Starting right here, I believe that Dr. Manette is losing his power and his Mm -hmm. like control over the people because he kind of steps in, but they're like, we don't care. We're taking him anyways. It says that he's accused by St. Antoine. And then he says, of what? And they're like, you can't ask me any more questions. You'll find out tomorrow. Um, But then it comes out that the Defarges and one other are responsible for this. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to tell him who the one other is. They will find out when he's summoned the next day. Here's their line. And it's total indoctrination and very... Awful. It says, if the Republic demands sacrifices from you, without doubt, you as a good patriot will be happy to make them. The Republic goes before all. The people is supreme. Evermond, we are pressed, you know, so we got to go. But that is the attitude of any tyrannical regime is if you are, you know, really on our side, you will sacrifice anything. You will sacrifice your parents, your children, your brothers, everybody to show that you're on our side. 
I mean, you found that in Russia, you found that in red China, like it's across the board. It's what people, Nazi Germany, you know, it's what people did. It's this horrible idea that they say it's the people is supreme. It's not, it's the government is supreme. It's their bizarre form of government. And the few people who have decided they're in charge, they are the ones who are supreme. This book reminds me of, you know, movies like, okay, when they were talking about, it seemed like the people were reversed. Good people were the ones in prison and the Mm -hmm. ones that were in charge were like, what did it say? Like the low, the Mm -hmm. cruelest, whatever. (laughs) I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the walking dead or like TV shows like that, where you'll see these groups of people come in and like take over. I guess we see this all the time is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Stories. Yeah, you really do. I love this next chapter that you're going to talk about. I do too. Yeah, the, I'm excited. The play with eight, the cards is it's really brilliant. good. It's yeah, brilliant. it is brilliant. So we'll move through this first part kind of quickly. Basically, we're back with Miss Cross and Mr. Cruncher. They are out in the city just doing their shopping. So, of course, they have no idea what just went down back at the apartment. As they're going along, it says they had a wary eye for all gregarious and assemblages of people because they want to avoid the very appearance of mobs. You know, they never want to get caught in that bad situation. So if there's any sort of gathering of people, they kind of avoid it. So as they're in this little store, Miss Pross, she's trying to get some wine and this man stands up and he's about to leave and she sees him. As soon as she sees him, she screams and everybody just jumps on their feet because they think that, you know, somebody's about to murder somebody. But what it turns out, she says, oh, Solomon, Solomon, it's her brother. It's this famous Solomon that we keep hearing about, who's kind of the worst just from things that we do know, but she thinks he's the only one good enough to marry Lucy, but he is actually the worst. She's just the sweetest sister. She's like, oh, I'm so happy to see, and very naive. And I'm so happy to see you, you know, it's been so long. And then I find you here and he says, don't call me Solomon. Do you want to be the death of me? And she's like, what's going on? Why are you treating me this way? And so basically he's like, step outside. And when they do, he's like, what do you want? She's just like, so happy to see him. And he's like, I'm not surprised to see you here. I've known you were here all this time. I know most of the people who are here. If you really don't want to endanger my existence, which I half believe you do, go your ways as soon as possible. Let me go mine. I'm busy. I am an official. And she's like, what are you doing? You're an Englishman. What are you doing in France as an official? Then she's basically just like, okay, fine, fine. Like, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want any bad things to happen to you. So she's like, just say one nice thing to me so that I have something to go on basically and I will leave. And this commentary is the estrangement between them had nothing to do with her. As if Mr. Laurie had not known it for a fact years ago in a quiet corner in Soho that this precious brother had spent her money and left her. So Mr. Laurie knew that her brother Solomon was a horrible human and he had taken all of her money. So I don't know that she knows that or not. So Right then, Mr. Cruncher comes up and is like, is your name John Solomon or Solomon John? Because basically he's like, I know that there's a John in there and you don't go by your last name, Pross. And Cruncher is so funny. He's like, the name that you've gone by has two syllables, but I can't (laughs) remember what it is right now. And then it's like 
things are slowly clicking in his brain. He's like, you were a spy. You were a witness at the old Bailey. All of a sudden, this other voice chimes in and it says, Barsand. And Jerry's like, ah, that's the name. That's who he is. Ha. Huh. So the other speaker is Sidney Carton, who is here. And he was the mystery guest, yeah. Mr. Laurie. I figured that. A- I, yes. I thought that when the mystery guest showed up, I was like, I bet you this is Carton because we know he's going to come back in and like yeah. save them all. Yeah. Is my guess. And yeah. And so <laughs> here he is. And he stepped in right at just at the right moment. And he's like, this is Barsad. And Jerry's like, oh, yes, it is. Just as a reminder, John Barsad, he was a witness at the trial. He's also the one who came and was like spying on Monsieur and Madame Defarge at their shop, right? So he's kind of all over the place. And we'll learn more about that later. And all this time, he's also Solomon Pross. He's Miss Pross's brother. So hidden in plain sight. They call him the sheep of the prisons. It says that sheep was a cant word of the time for a spy. And so Sidney Carton tells him how he knew that he'd come across him and he kind of put all the pieces together. He says he wants to talk to him at the bank. Right now, I can't remember if they actually get to the bank before they start talking. He just kind of is like, oh, why do I need to go with you? Yeah, but they do. They go to Telson's bank. First, they decide to, well, okay, so he agrees he's going to go. And then yeah. Carton says, we need to take Miss Pross, make sure she gets home safe. And that that was an interesting paragraph in there that I didn't quite understand. But Miss Pross recalled soon afterwards and to the end of oh. her life remembered, I think this might be, make sense later in the book, maybe, that as she yes. pressed her hands on Sidney's arm and looked up in his face, imploring him to do no harm to, no hurt to Solomon, there was a braced purpose in the arm and a kind of inspiration in his eyes. Which not only contradicted his light manner, but changed and raised the man. What she's saying is that, especially where Sidney Carton is concerned, he's, as we've said before, a very brilliant man, but with no drive, no purpose, no motivation in life. That has completely changed. He has a purpose. She sees it in his eyes. And okay. in her eyes, he has now been elevated. He's a much better person. She can't even really put her finger on why, but she knows he's, yeah, he's, he's better. He's okay. Um, that makes sense. Very noble. There's like sort of a nobility about him. Yeah. So she was too much occupied then with the fears for her brother who so little deserved her affection and with Sydney's friendly reassurances adequately to heed what she had observed. So she looking back, Yes, but yes. And it is probably one of those hindsight things that after everything has played out, she's like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. They drop off Miss Pross and then they walk to meet up with actually Mr. Laurie at Telson so that Mr. Laurie will be there and witness the whole thing as well. And Sydney introduces Barsad to Mr. Laurie. And of course, Mr. Laurie like recognizes him, but he didn't realize before that he's Solomon Pross, Miss Pross's brother. He does have to remind him because it's been many years since that trial. He reminds me, says he's he was a witness at that trial. Mr. Laurie immediately remembered and regarded his new visitor with an undisguised look of abhorrence. Then Sydney says, I've got worse news. Darnay has been arrested again. Mr. Laurie hadn't heard that. And he's like, what? I left him just two hours ago and he was just fine. Yeah, so Sydney's like, he was arrested again, even after all that. When was it done, Mr. Barsad? 
And Barsad says, just now, if at all, because Sydney had actually overheard Mr. Barsad talking to the other men in the little shop about it. Sydney says that even he is shaken by the fact that Dr. Manette had no power to prevent the arrest. So like, this is pretty serious. It's a desperate time when desperate games are played for desperate stakes. Let the doctor play the winning game. I will play the losing one. No man's life here is worth purchase. Anyone carried home by the people today may be condemned tomorrow. So he begins in on this metaphor of games. Mr. Barsad is like, if you want to play a game, you're going to have to have really good cards. And that's when Sydney is like, I'll run over the cards that I have and we'll see how it goes. So basically what we know is that Sydney Carton is trying to strike a deal with Barsad. And when he first started, I was like, he's got to have something huge on him. What is he going to have? And then he starts presenting his cards, everything that he has to basically blackmail Barsad. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So here's what he has. He's like, hmm, let's see. Sheep of the prisons, emissary of Republican committees, now turnkey, now prisoner, always spy and secret informer. So much the more valuable here for being English that an Englishman is less open to suspicion of subordination in those characters than a Frenchman, represents himself to his employers under a false name. That's a very good card. So he's like, here's my first card. Then he says, Mr. Barsad, now in the employ of the Republican French government, formerly in the employ of the aristocratic English government, the enemy of France and freedom. That's an excellent card. Okay, so there's card number two. <laughs> Inference clear as day that Mr. Barsad is still in the pay of the aristocratic English government. Is the spy of Pitt, the treacherous foe of the Republic, crouching in its bosom, the English traitor and agent of all mischief so much spoken of and so difficult to find? That's a card not to be beaten. Okay. So he's like, are you following? How am I doing? I love that. Have you followed my hand, Mr. Barsad? It's great. Yeah, it really is. And Mr. Barsad's like, not to understand what you're actually going to do. He's like, I see what you're saying. So what are you going to do? And then he's like, here's my ace. Denunciation of Mr. Barsad to the nearest section committee. Look over your hand, Mr. Barsad, and see what you have. He's basically like, Take your time. See if there's any way you can combat what I've got. But you can't, basically. You know, he's like, I'm I'm going to denounce you unless you do everything that I want you to do. And that's bad. I mean, basically, he's like, you will be guillotined if I say this to anybody. Carrying on the metaphor, it says he saw losing cards and even some that Sidney Carton didn't know anything about. He had been thrown out of his employment in England. I'm not going to go into super great detail, but basically he's like a double, triple, quadruple spy. He's like a spy all over the place for like lots of people. And that's like the worst kind that get the worst treatment, you know, to be a spy is one thing. If you're a double spy, what do they call that? It's a double agent, but is that it? Oh, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's just what it is. A double agent, double spy. Yeah. Because he goes back and forth, but he he's kind of like a mercenary, a, a spy for hire. He'll go to anybody, and that really is the worst kind of treachery. And he knows that. And so he's just going through his head all these things that he's done. And he, for a minute, he recalls Madame Dufarge, and he's like, 
she's kind of the worst because he talks about how he'd seen her with her knitting and he'd figured out what that knitting was about because he knew he was never safe. He had seen her in the section of San Antonio over and over again produce her knitted registers and denounce people whose lives the guillotine then surely swallowed up. So anybody that she denounced ended up dead. So back to Sydney. He's watching all these calculations going on in Barsad's head. And he's like, you don't seem to like your hand. Are you going to play? So then Barsad turns to Mr. Laurie and he's like, Okay, listen, I am a spy, but this gentleman is no spy. And why should he so demean himself as to make himself one? So basically, like, why is he even doing this? Like, what what's going on? So Carton says, I play my ace, Mr. Barsad, without any scruple in a very few minutes. Like, why would he go and denounce me? Oh, this is what I'm understanding right here. Okay, he says, I'm about to play my ace in a few minutes. I'm going to tell you the thing that's going to make you do this. And then Barsad is trying to get out of it by bringing up his sister. He says, I should have hoped, gentlemen, both, that your respect for my sister, and they don't even let him, like, finish. They say, Sydney says, I could not better testify my respect for your sister than by finally relieving her of her brother. Yeah. try. Right. Like, (laughs) we're actually doing your sister a favor. What Barsad is really saying is, like, you're a gentleman. Why would you demean yourself by acting like you're a spy by saying you know all these things about me and then going and denouncing me? That would be so demeaning to you. And Sydney's like, I have no problem with that. Yeah. I don't I don't care. You know, I'm going to do it. So they go through a couple of other things. And then it comes out that this friend that Barsad was talking to in the shop was actually Roger Cly. And I believe it's Sydney Carton who says it. He says, I know the face. It is Roger Cly. He's a fellow sheep, you know, with you. And he said he's disguised, but it is the same person. We saw him at the Old Bailey. And Barsad's like, oh, no, it's not. And I can prove it. I can prove it. I have his death certificate. And this is like my favorite part. He's yes. Like, he's dead several years. And he's like, it's not um, a fraud. It's not a forgery. That's what we call it. He's no, like, it's, it's not, not a forgery. forgery. It's real. He's like, I laid him in his coffin. Mr. Lorry became aware from where he sat of a most remarkable goblin shadow on the wall, and he discovered it to be caused by a sudden extraordinary rising and stiffening of all the risen and stiff hair on Mr. Cruncher's head. (laughs) This is where the story comes full circle, right? (laughs) Because Mr. Cruncher inserts himself in the conversation. He says, you put him in the coffin, Mr. Barsad? And Barsad says, yes, I did. So who took him out of it? Now, if I, I wrote down, this is such a coincidence that Mr. Cruncher used to be a grave robber. <laughs> and I love it. he actually saw in the coffin. Yes. And the body wasn't just missing. There were, there were paving stones and earth in the coffin. Barsad knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They, yeah, did, they were trying plan. to... They planned this whole thing. Yeah, Cruncher is the one who's able to step in and be like, no, I'm not going to tell you how I know, but I know that there was paving stones and dirt in there. There was no body. So are you the one who removed it or was it never in there? Yeah, and he's like, how do you know? And he's like, I just do. And two other people know too. Two other fishermen. Yeah. (laughs) And Sidney Carton and Mr. Lawyer are just like completely amazing. They're like, how do you know this? He's like, this is not a good time to talk about it. But I just know. So he's uh, Carton is like, look, 
I have another card because you are also in communication with another spy, an English spy. That is not good for you at all. That was something that will certainly send you to the guillotine. Then basically Barsad is like, hey, I give up. Like, what do you want? And Sydney says, you're a turnkey at the conciergerie. Barsad thinks he knows what he's going to ask. He's like, there's no way to escape. I can't, you know, there's no way that you're going to be able to help Darnay escape. It's not going to happen. Sydney's basically like, you need to answer my question. Are you a turnkey at the conciergerie? He says, yes, sometimes I am. So you can be when you choose. I can pass in and out when I choose. And so at this point... Oh, and it is important to note that Sidney Carton is guzzling brandy. <laughs> okay. You know, he's about to do something he's terrified of, but he's going to do it. And he needs like the drink to sort of help him get through it. So at this point, he downs some more brandy and he's like, hey, the rest of what I'm going to say to you is going to be in private. And so they go into another room to talk out the rest of what's going to be said. And that is the end of the chapter. And that's kind of a great little cliffhanger to leave the whole episode on. Next week, we are going to finish the book. Book the third, chapter nine through 15. And we'll be done. And that is the rest of the book. So it's a tough one. Like, I feel like this has been a grind, but so good because I'm so happy that I finally like understand a tale of two cities did you feel like you didn't before i totally feel like i didn't before like i said i think i read it like twice before but that was when i was a teenager and i was just like i should read it because that's the thing i should do and i didn't understand it at all i was thinking about it and i'm like okay when we're done with this book i'm totally gonna know the story of a tale of two cities Mm -hmm. no question yeah Yeah. (laughs) so this is exciting yeah it really is I know I feel so accomplished. So, well, I'm super excited to tell you about what I'm listening, what I listened to this week. My oh, book, book I read, we'll say I read. My husband says I can't say that, but I'm going to tell you that anyways. I read <laughs> listen it, to listen it. to it. So years ago, I was totally into this group. It was a family of 12 kids that was on um, America's Got Talent. And I don't know if that's how I found them or whatever, but they, they danced and, and did, played Irish music. And some a little bit of bluegrass later. And they were this amazing family. They were called the Willis clan. Have you ever heard of them? Mm-mm. They even came to Eugene and performed. Really? Um, and they had a reality TV show on TLC for two seasons. Oh, they were so good. And I loved it. I loved their show. I like lived for it. So we got to see him in Eugene and it was like, I just remember that night, like just smiling through the whole thing. They, I mean, the youngest kids were like four and five. And they would come out and dance and like, so they were like 23 to four. Oh, wow. And they would, they all played instruments. They were just so good. In 2016, I think it came out that their father had been sexually abusing all of the kids, like all the girls, all the girls. And he was physically abusive with the boys, which (sighs) we didn't know then anyways. And so it all shut down. Like they, no more TLC show. I think they still perform a little bit, but they like social media just shut down everything. Well, the oldest girl is the one that told base. Well, Mm -hmm. sort of some other people outside of the family kind of figured it out. They told she had escaped. And so then the authorities went to her and she was ready to tell she had been going through therapy and was like, yeah, I'm going to tell you everything that's going on. Good grief. It's just 
So I always wanted to know the girl that told said one thing and then the family member said another thing, basically. And I wanted to know what like the truth was based, like, did the mom know? Did the boys know? Right. So anyways, Jessica Willis Fisher, the oldest daughter wrote a book and Mm -hmm. that's what I listened to this week. It's called unspeakable. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating. Basically their dad was like a cult leader, you know, with 12 kids. Yeah. And he was beating his wife, like beating her. He, he spanked the 23 year old girl with a belt, like right before she escaped. And that was the day she was like, I'm out of here. Anyways, that makes me so mad. They they wouldn't, they kept her cut off from the world. So Mm -hmm. she wasn't allowed to have cell phone. She's 23 years old. Yeah. Like, and no why are they much- even making choices for her anymore? Yeah, but That's she was very bizarre. So much, she was under so much control. Sure. Anyways, it was fascinating. What I really liked about it was there was a couple of parts where she went into detail about like the sexual abuse, and then later the adult phys- physical abuse. And she would say, "If you don't want to hear this, skip to the next track." And so I loved that because I. I'm very disturbed by that. So I would just skip the next track. And so that was really nice. And so other than that, like if you didn't want to listen to the graphic parts, then you could skip it. That is nice that you have the option to just skip. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it was really. I mean, you always have an option to skip, but like she kind of gives you a Yeah. Just go to the next track and then you missed it, you know, and she would go. Anyways, it was just very good. I, I really, I really liked it. I felt like it's hard to say I liked it because. You hate it, but I was so interested in like, maybe it gives you a little bit of closure on the story. What actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure there were a lot of people that were invested in them. I mean, like we went to, when we went to see them here, I took my parents and all the kids went, oh, it, it was, and like, it was weird to read the book and think about that was happening. Yeah. Like I bet that was a very surreal experience. Yeah, like they, we went and talked to them afterwards. And oh, like, wow. you know, they were like, I don't know. It's just like you're watching them on stage acting a certain way, not even knowing that what's going on behind the stage was horrific. Anyways, it was crazy. It's so crazy. It's just, you just never really know what's going on behind the scenes, do you? So you like, I don't know, because when you first started saying it, I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why don't my children know how to dance? And I know they have 12 kids and it's like, okay, but at what cost? Anytime you see, I mean, I don't want to offend anybody that has kids that do all that, but anytime you see a family like that, I think there's issues that there's control issues. There often are. In fact, it was really kind of freeing to me one time I've talked before about how I love Dr. John Deloney and I'm pretty sure it was on his show. They were talking about how like a lot of times kids that get, get really good grades, that is a trauma response. Obviously like failing out of all your classes, that is also a trauma response. But a lot of times those getting really good grades is a trauma response. It's like, they're desperately trying to please their parents or, you know, or, or maybe it's like, if I don't, they're going to beat me or, or do something horrible. Okay. So the one I'm going to share, I share it with reservations. Like I'm not saying that I recommend it. It was recommended to me. And I think quite a few people have read it and have heard of it. I cannot 
super recommend it because there's quite a bit of language. There's quite a bit of sexual content. Yeah, it's a little bit wild. Okay, so those are my disclaimers. So it's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Like I said, probably most people have heard of it or read it. The reason I carried on with it and I'm even going to talk about it is because I do feel like the themes that the author was really dissecting are very intriguing and important. So it's the story of of Addie LaRue, who's born in 1691 or 92 in France. And she just, she grows up in this little tiny village and she just like, I, she's like Belle in Beauty and the Beast. I want more. Or, no, is that, um, yeah, she's like, there must be more than this provincial life. <laughs> you know, the, and, or the Little Mermaid, I want more, you know. And she's going to be married off to this guy that she doesn't love, but her parents are like, no, you have to do this. And she just wants more from her life than being, than just living in this village, probably dying in childbirth, you know. And so she makes, she makes a deal with the devil, basically. She doesn't realize that she did, but she did that she just wants to experience life a lot more than that. And so basically the deal is that she will live forever until she decides to give her soul over to the darkness is what she calls it. The catch is that people forget her as soon as she's around the corner or the door shuts or anything. She's totally forgotten and she can't leave a mark. Yeah. The very next day she finds all, everything has changed. Yeah. She can't even say her name <laughs> to anybody. Anything that she draws or writes or even breaks, it is fixed. It's erased everything. And so obviously that creates a whole bunch of problems, but she never dies. She experiences everything. And then we find ourselves in 2014 and she runs into this guy who works at a bookshop and he remembers her. And she's like, wait, what? How does he remember her? And she can say her name to him. Come to find out he also made a deal with the devil that he wanted to be enough. Like he never felt like he was enough. He wanted to be enough. So they kind of find each other and yeah, just that developing relationship. And we kind of see her progression through the years between the years of 1714 to 2014 and all the things that happened in there. And it's just a really interesting digging into the, the idea of like, what is happiness? What does it mean to experience life? And like, how much is enough? Do we really need to be everything for everybody? Just explore some interesting themes and you kind of realize like it probably wouldn't actually be that great to be immortal yeah certainly would get boring after a while yeah Yeah, i read that like a year ago maybe i like i remember like it being interesting enough yeah it is very interesting it has a good pace and lots of good dialogue very interesting little sketch We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss A Tale of Two Cities, Part 3, Chapters 9 through 15, which will take us to the end of the book. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best book. As Thoreau says, 
Read the best books first, or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.